Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. It's Monday, July 2nd, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I have a soft spot for science history, so let me take you on a historical journey. So picture it, 1848, Germany. We're in the backyard of a scientist. He has a number of chickens running around, some roosters, some hens, but he has a question. So he wants to know why those roosters seem so much more, you know, full of life. They're always chasing the hens around. They have like the different color display that's going on. Why are they so different? Well, uh, if we go back to my interview with Karen Bondar, we'd say that the chickens are spending a lot of their energy making their expensive gametes, the eggs. So what does this scientist do? He castrates the roosters, of course, like that's the natural thing to do. So he castrates the roosters and he sees that the roosters tend to calm down. They actually have color fade from some of their plumage, um, especially around their head. Wow. Uh, and uh, notices they're chasing the hens less. There must be something going on with that magical organ he just cut off, right? Well, he takes it a step farther. He has a pair of roosters and he decides to castrate them again. But this time, he takes their testicles and implants them in each other's abdomens. Okay. <laughs> that story is the birth of endocrinology. Wow. That is the first scientist who starts to observe the impact of hormones. Did it work? I mean, can you actually just do that and then get a hormonal effect from testicles in your abdomen? I'm going to have to leave our audience on a cliffhanger because you're going to find out this week in, in this week's interview. I'm talking to Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein. Uh, she's a medical writer, lecturer at Yale University, a writer in residence at Yale Medical School, and a professor at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and she has a new book out called Aroused, The History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything. And after reading her book, I have to say, they do. They control just about everything. Uh, and it's this weird thing, like, I hormones don't get a lot of press in science news these days. I mean, they were kind of a bigger rage maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. 
But there's so much rich history in how we stumbled onto the, these chemical agents that have impact on our metabolism, on our you know ability to sort of mate, our ability to grow up, even our ability to think and, and how our brain develops. And uh, she has amazing tales of how we arrived at our understanding of various hormones and how they sort of flood our system and, and change us. And I have to admit, some of the characters in this book are weirder than the science itself. And so it's an amazing tale. I think it's my favorite science book so far this year. So with that, let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Randy Hutter Epstein. Randy Hutter Epstein, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This phrase being hormonal, it's like a phrase that has existed for, you know, it feels like 40 years. And we attribute so much to that phrase, like sex, our physical growth, our metabolism, our mood, uh, even our happiness. Is that a fair assessment of the power of hormones? Well, two things. One, yes, it's a fair assessment of the power of hormones, but I think we have two things going on here. We have one, the expression hormonal, which I would say that since we invented the word hormone or tagged it to these chemicals in 1905, hormonal tends to mean women going off the rails. That's what we tend to think hormonal, crazy women. However, Hormones, yeah. In real life, hormones, your husband has them, your kids, your baby from when sperm met egg, your mother, everyone, not just not just supposedly hysterical women. And yes, they do control our behavior in ways we're exploring now in some ways that we know and in some ways we're trying to figure out. This book is really a history lesson uh, and a very strange one at that, I, I must say. And I think the bizarre stories trace back to the beginning, uh, when did we first learn of hormones? Well, it's a good question because there's when did we first launch the field of endocrinology, which I would say is in the early 1900s and in 1905 is when a doctor thought, oh, all these, all these chemicals in the body, the pituitary gland and the testes and the ovaries and the adrenals, Actually, they all do the same sort of thing, and we need one field to cover it. Pre this time and before the 1900s, the adrenal guys didn't really talk to the testosterone guys who didn't really talk to the pituitary guys, and they didn't realize there was this unifying factor. So it was, I would, I like to say the beginning of the field really was in this 1905 time when this British doctor said, okay, here's the deal. There are chemicals in the body that do not travel along nerves. They don't have to start in one thing and be plugged into the next. They go, they leave, let's say, the gland, one gland, the pituitary in the brain, and like your Wi-Fi in your house, they know where the target is and they get there to the testes or the ovaries or the adrenal. So he came up with this and then thought, okay, now I need a word for these chemicals. He went to his friend, a University of Cambridge classicist, and said, give me a word that means to arouse or to excite in Greek. He was thinking arouse the way maybe your listeners think of it, like arouse cell receptors, not in the sexual libido kind of way. And his friend said, how about something along the lines of hormoa? So that's how he got the word hormone. 
But yet, the way things happen in science is there's always someone that says, wait, 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 we knew about that theory before 1905, and we did. In 1848, in Germany, in a doctor's backyard, he did a really wacky experiment that really, for the first time, explained how hormones work. A a chemical that doesn't go through the nerves, we thought everything went through the nerves, that went through the blood and hit a target. He published these results in a scientific journal, and then he just went off and did other things. And to me, it's fascinating in terms of how science works, because one, you need to do a really good experiment, check, the German guy did that. Two, you need to publish your results, check, he did that. Three, you have to understand the ramifications and then get the word out. He didn't do that one. So it took 50 years after the German backyard experiment to really launch this field. I won't spoil much of the story, but he's quite the character, I'll just say. The idea of like, you know, doing experiments in your backyard and essentially birthing a whole new field of science, it, it was just an amazing tale. Yeah, let's just say it had to do with roosters and testicles and castrating them and then shoving testicles into his roosters' bellies and weird stuff like that. Yeah, I think you encapsulated the weirdest parts, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the more interesting stories uh, for me, and it might be one of the more obscure ones, is is the story in the book of how we stumbled into human growth hormone, because it touches upon our our friend the pituitary gland. Can you talk about the the balabans and and how they, they help basically unearth a lot of work in human growth hormone? I love this story. And because we're not talking about a pioneering endocrinologist, and we're not talking about some PhD chemist. We're talking about a mom from Long Island who desperately wanted to help her son. So what we need to know is that after we learned in 1922 that insulin from the pancreas or insulin that you can get from a cow pancreas can help a child balance their sugar, we there was this huge enthusiasm in the field that let's just get some cattle and get their hormones and then we can make these drugs for humans. But it didn't always pan out that way. So growth hormone from cows and growth hormone from other animals didn't do anything for humans. So we learned that actually you need human growth hormone to help other humans grow. And where do you get human growth hormone from pituitaries? So in the 1960s, this mom, Barbara Balaban, took her son to a doctor because she was worried that he was growth hormone deficient. At the time in in 1961, while it was available a technique to measure hormones, it wasn't widespread. So they weren't measuring his hormones. They were just kind of looking at him and doing an assessment. And was he actually like deficient in size in a way that required this? You know, we don't know. Barbara Balaban is short. Her husband is short. The fear was that her son might not make it to five feet. There was no way to predict it. She believes that, yes, he probably was growth hormone deficient. But in those days, they didn't do tests to measure levels. It was also the time when there was a huge fear that short boys were basically condemned to a life of, you know, inferiority. No one would hire you. No one would marry you. I went through magazines of that period. You'd be frightened if you were a mom and thought, okay, your son is five inches too short and therefore he has absolutely no future. 
So this was sort of the culture of the time. Barbara Balaban goes to the doctor. The doctor said they tried other things. Thyroid hormone didn't work. They didn't try testosterone because the doctor was against it, but some doctors were giving testosterone to make boys grow. doesn't work. And the doctor said, well, we could try growth hormone. It's new. And they said, sure. And then the doctor said, well, we don't have any. You have to get your own. You have to collect your own pituitaries. So I think this is what you're thinking is, wow, this is amazing what this mom did. Her husband was a psychiatrist, so they knew doctors, and they couldn't send blast emails in the 1960s. So she sat at her kitchen table and wrote letters to every pathologist, any surgeon, anyone she knew that might know a pathologist to say, we just found out our son needs growth hormone. We can get it from the pituitary. Please send me some. And I'll just leap forward in this story to say that Barbara Balban's proud of the thank you notes she wrote to each person, and she said that motivated them to send more. So take advice, send, write that thank you note if you have one to do. It's important. She ended up becoming one of the largest collectors of pituitary glands in the country, third only to the Veterans Administration and the National Institutes of Health. Not a bad distinction. No, no, not a bad distinction at all, just for being a mom with a lot of moxie. And as she said, look, it was in the 1960s, that's what you did. She protested the Vietnam War. Years later, she founded a breast cancer coalition. She knew how to get things done. And then my story goes on to really talk about the purification of growth hormone and also how Barbara became part of this association that actually tried to divvy up fairly the growth hormone that was collected. It was kind of amazing seeing some pictures in the book of just jars and jars filled to the brim with pituitaries um, ready for extraction of of growth hormone. Luckily, I think we do it in a laundry room. (laughs) Luckily, I think we do it a different way these days. We do it a different way and you're not allowed to just send body parts through the mail like that. Thank goodness. I'm going to go yes. with thank goodness on that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I am in my 40s and in the risk of, of sharing too much information, this is the part of life where there's discussion of getting a vasectomy shows up. Like I, I have my son where we're, we're really happy. But you start talking about the history of, of vasectomies in this book in a, in a way that I, I just didn't expect where vasectomies were sold as not just a... Um, a, a method to to stop reproduction, but also one that revitalized people because of of the effects. And I we we can't not talk about Steinock at this point. Oh, I love this guy. The thing, the reason why I like the story of Steinock, who who was our who promoted the theory in the 1920s that vasectomies boosted libido, is because we love to have things black and white. You know, we love to have good guys go on one side of the room, bad guys go on the other. But, you know, there's a lot of gray zones in this. So Steinach was a really wonderful investigator and pioneering endocrinologist nominated for the Nobel Prize 11 times. And yet, like many people, he wasn't perfect. So while he had some wonderful theories that turned out to be accurate, Another theory he had was that in the 1920s, again, before we had isolated testosterone, his feeling was that if we could prevent these vital manly juices from going out of the body and jam them and keep them up there in the body, 
that certainly would make you more manly and boost your libido and your thinking and everything that in the 1920s we thought men did. Be smart, have a good sex life, be good at work, be energetic. Um, So he tested this out in a few rats, and I think he thought that his rats just seemed a lot healthier after a vasectomy. And he started promoting this theory. Freud, it became so popular that his name became a verb. So you weren't just having a vasectomy. You got Steinacked. And um, Freud did it and said he never felt better. Yeats, the poet, did it, said he never felt better. It became a huge, I would say, I'd call it a fad with thousands of men saying, wow, I just got a vasectomy. And my boss is commenting that my workload is just, you know, increased and I'm doing better. My wife says, oh my God, you know, you haven't been like this since when we first got married. I did call some urologists about this and their feeling was, well, you might have a little blip in testosterone right after the operation, but it doesn't really do much. But it shows the power of the placebo. For sure. And I actually think one of the interesting, you know, subtexts of that of that chapter was when you talked about some of the experiments that went on in rats at that time that talked about uh, libido. And I, I think there was one um, experiment that showed that even when male rats had regular access to reproduction with, with a female but they were isolated for periods of time that didn't lead to a rise in their overall libido because they needed to be around the females for an extended period to be stimulated. Yeah, this was this whole feedback thing that Steinak did. And we wonder how he was monitoring these rats, too. I mean, they worked these studies. His really careful studies were in interstitial cells of the testes when he actually looked at cadavers and he actually were looking at humans. He kind of went off course when he started looking at what he calls the erotization of rats. And the one thing we have to learn is he was watching male rats mount female rats you know, we really don't know. We really can't distinguish between lust and aggression and and what other things drive rats. Um, but he did notice that, yes, there was a difference when they had, when they were around females more. He thought maybe that had to do with the learning process. He thought, again, that it affected their internal secretions. He didn't use the word testosterone. It wasn't around yet. Um, but yeah, he did do these meticulous rat monitoring studies of keeping the males away from the females, keeping them with the females, allowing them to observe other males, what they did with females. And he, he didn't, he thought it was more had to do with these hormones and how it affect, how behavior and hormones were connected. I partially bring it up because, you know, all the stories we've talked about so far have largely, even when the experiments have been rigorously done, they've been qualitative in nature when it comes to the actual hormones themselves. And that shifts in the the late 50s, early 60s, when a quantitative test really comes on the scene to actually measure a hormone quantity. Can you talk about that new test and, and how it sort of revolutionized endocrinology generally? I love this story. And I have to say that this is about Rosalind Yallow, who did win a Nobel Prize. I love telling her story so much that I emailed her children who are now in their 40s and 50s to say, I'll be talking about your mom, exclamation point. And they love it because people that knew Rosalind Yallow, Nobel laureate, PhD physicist, um, she died um, about 10 years ago, think of this tough, hard-headed woman. And when you know her history, 
she deserves to be as tough as they come. So the test that she created along with Salman Burson is radioimmunoassay, which probably a lot of your listeners have heard of. And it's the test not just to measure hormones. Now we have more modern versions, but it is able to measure the level of any substance in the body that we thought previously was too scarce to measure. And it depends greatly on knowing the force of the chemical bonds between antibodies and antigens. And they created these formulas specific to each hormone that would be able to tell you how much hormone is in the body, down to the billionth, billionth of a gram. And the same can be done with drug levels, with finding viruses. We wouldn't be able to find the HIV virus without having the basis of radioimmunoassay. Um, so it's, it's truly, I, I really don't like to use the word revolutionize because we overuse it. This revolutionized 20th century medicine. And a bit about Rosalind Yallo. So she was this um, kid, this girl in New York, um, brought up poor by immigrants who were uneducated. I don't think her parents who were from Eastern Russia graduated Eastern Europe in the Russian area, graduated from high school. She worked hard and graduated tops in her class from Hunter College in New York, which is a public high school, a public college. Um, she told her teachers that, wow, she loved physics. She was tops in her class. This is what she wants to do. They said, why don't you become a secretary for a scientist? That would be more suitable for a woman who has such good aptitude that you have. So she was really at this block. So she, she took a job at Columbia University as a secretary for a scientist, thinking this way, once you're, once you're in the Columbia system then, you could take any classes for free. So she figured she'd just pile on the science courses. Um, her boss suggested at the time that rather than waste her time studying science, why doesn't she take stenography classes? That would be useful for a woman to do. Anyhow, I'll jump ahead of the story. She eventually made it to University of Illinois to get a PhD in physics only because there was extra space because all the men were off fighting in World War II. Her son, who I've spoke to, has said to me that his mother had no sense of humor at all. Zero. Zilch. That's a quote. I think she did because she's quoted in her biography as saying they had to have a world war so I could get a graduate degree. <laughs> so, yeah. That's amazing. Yes. And it's true. So she went on from there to back to the Bronx where they gave her a really lousy, tiny lab. And in that lousy, tiny lab, she collaborated with Solomon Burson. And I won't go too deep into the science, but the first thing they did was prove that insulin can get an immune response. Before that, we thought that hormones such, such as insulin were so tiny and so sparse that they couldn't, that they wouldn't elicit an immune response in the body. So she, they wrote this article. They had all the data. It was accurately done. It got rejected from all the big journals. Um, and she really pushed and pushed saying, but we know we're getting this antibody response Finally, one editor of the Journal of Endocrinology said, um, okay, we'll publish your article. We can't find any flaws in it, but we just can't believe it. So change the word antibody to globulin. So they did. So they published it under that. And that was led, that, that antibody antigen reaction led to their technique of radioimmunoassay. I agree with you about not sort of overusing the word revolutionized, but... 
pretty much every lab, every immunology lab, every sort of viral lab is using a gener a, a next generation version of this assay. Absolutely. And the speed at which these assays can be done now have actually have fundamentally just saved people's lives because they've been able to diagnose either viruses or other situations in the body nearly within uh, you know hours now and none of that would have been possible without some of this pioneering work absolutely none of it and and when she went and got her nobel prize she said she she said keep working stick to the truth stick to the facts i'm paraphrasing her a bit but she did say and then save all your rejection letters because you can put them on display when you get your Nobel Prize. And she did. I want to fast forward because, you know, hormones are still part of uh, an area areas of in incredible research. And and while some of this research is showing a lot of promise, there's also stories of peril. And, and I think we should talk about obesity and leptin in particular, because I think it illustrates sort of both sides where. Research has shown promise in understanding an aspect of this, but that story has been sensationalized in a way that doesn't speak to the heart of the science. Can you talk about leptin specifically? Sure. So we know that in a very tiny portion of the population, there are people that have a defect in the genes that control the hormones in the leptin pathway that controls your appetite. So from the pure wow hormones behavior point of view, this research really does connect a hormone with the behavior. It's not about weight gain. This is about the behavior to eat. So among these people with this rare hormone defect, they are compelled to keep eating. They're not hungry the way we get hungry where you smell baked goods and then it tastes so good. They're just shoving food in their mouth and this almost compulsion to keep doing it. So, yes, they do get obese from this. We've also found that for these small group of people with this hormone defect, they are now doing studies. It, depending on the kind of hormone defect, you can actually give some people leptin injections and this will balance them and then they can live a normal, healthy life. Some people have a different sort of defect that all the leptin in the world won't help them because their body doesn't respond to it. And there are drugs in the pipeline um, that are being tested now in Europe that are helping these people live normal lives, that they're not obsessed with having to constantly eat. One young man who's in this study in Europe said, after being on this new drug for a while, he can he's never tasted food before, like he's never enjoyed food. And he lost about like 100 pounds after just calming his body down. Um, where did it go off the rails a bit is like, I wouldn't recommend that your listeners go out and buy the leptin diet book. And there's other things that you can find about balancing your own leptin. If you don't fit into this category of having this kind of hormone defect, there are other reasons why we eat other than a hormone drive. Sometimes... Sometimes we eat when we're not hungry. Sometimes we're not compelled to have to actually go out and get that ice cream, but we just want to do it anyhow. So for a lot of us, um, there's not that quick fix diet pill out there. But, but, but the way we do eat and our hunger probably is, I mean, not probably, it is related to our hormones, but we're just not going to get that quick fix the way the people with this specific defect have. Why I think the story of how it went off the rails is interesting is because it's illustrative of 
of so much charlatanism that is out there around hormones. Like I can turn on the TV and see ads for uh, low T, low testosterone and how there's therapy for it. Or I can read stories about how endocrine disruptors in in our plastics are, are going to uh, fundamentally change how our, our system operates and potentially lead to birth defects. And so some of that's founded on good science, some of it's not. How do you think people weed through these issues around hormones? Because it almost feels like magic at times when I could take this pill or be injected with this and everything about me could change. You know, it's. I mean, that's the thing that makes reading about hormones and studying them fascinating because there are some seemingly magical things we're doing now. And then there are these really brilliant yet um, mm, shady characters that know how to tap into some of the seeds, these scientific pearls, and then carry them off the wrong way. So I think when it comes to quick diets or boosting your libido and all these things that you hear you, those those probably go more on the charlatan side. Um, you don't want to be buying something that goes around the FDA approval kind of process that says this contains hormones that'll make you think better or faster or boost your libido because you really don't know what's in that. It could be nothing. It could just be a nice you know glass of sugar water, or it could be some sort of thyroid hormone that could make your heart race and make you feel a little bit more awake and energetic, but it's not so healthy for your heart. Um, In terms of, I think you were also alluding to endocrine disruptors. And that's something, um, that's what we talk about as some of the chemicals now in the environment that get into the water that might be getting into our food supply that somehow act like hormones and might be either getting our bodies off balance or combining with our hormones in a way that could be dangerous. It's very difficult. This is real, and it's a real threat. We don't have, for a lot of this, conclusive evidence. We have a lot of hints. So there are certain chemicals in plastics that have been linked potentially to some dangers if fetuses are exposed to high doses. So we can avoid certain kinds of plastics while we're pregnant to make sure when our baby's brains are developing that they're not exposed. Um, There's a limit to how much we can just go to another planet and have completely pesticide-free, extra chemical-free, fresh air during the nine months of pregnancy to make sure our babies aren't exposed. But we can do certain things that as a precaution, even though we don't know for sure. But the science does make sense. There, There are basic science research showing that some of these chemicals that are in our environment now are impacting our DNA and are impacting our hormone balance in ways that we're not quite sure yet. You know, at the top of the show, I use the the phrase being hormonal. And and I actually hate that phrase as well, as you alluded to. It, it's used as a slight against women. But I also think like underpinning that slight is the slight generally against this system, the system of hormones that runs through our body and makes makes us different from one another in some ways, shape or form. There's There's people that actually have hormonal differences that leads to some changes. And there's some that are on, you know, different cycles. And and I think, you know, in the scientific community, there's a lot of appreciation for how robust and amazing this hormonal system is. And, and 
I'm wondering after spending years researching all the backstories into how we came to these discoveries and and delving into the science, what do you walk away from after all those years around how you feel about hormones generally now? I have an appreciation of how intricately they're involved in our immune system and our behavior and our neurotransmitters. Um, I think about it, uh, probably um, I'm a little more cautious in terms of taking hormones. I have to say I'm a menopausal woman on hormone replacement therapy, so I am not against taking hormones when they're needed. I've also met some people today who are the benefits of the amazing hormone research that's been done. So I've met, I've met the mother of a child whose pituitary gland isn't really connecting with the rest of his glands. If this child were born 60 years ago, he would have been cognitively impaired, short, and never have gone through puberty. He would have survived, but he would have survived not going through puberty, um, not being able to think clearly, being intellectually stunted. Um, this child has been monitored by a pediatric endocrinologist since he was young, and he's a superstar brainiac kid. Um, so, and this is just from someone that can measure his hormones, see where they are, keep an eye on them. And we have so many hormones that are now been isolated to help. So we can really do, we're keeping diabetics alive. Before 1922, anyone with diabetes barely made it till their, you know, uh, third birthday, probably not even their first. So there, there's just awesome things we've done. But I think we also have to appreciate how they're all connected. We have to appreciate that if you're going to go out and take testosterone because you think it's going to boost your libido, taking testosterone is going to cascade with all these other hormones in your body. And it might not be so great for your insulin. It might not be so great for your adrenaline. So you have to think about how everything, it's more like a cobweb than just like this tube of taking something and one thing goes up. The book is called Aroused, The History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything. Rainy Hutter Epstein, thank you so much for joining us in Inquiring Minds. Thank you. I was thrilled to be on the show. So I have to say, I was uh, pleased to hear that this wasn't just going to be about hysterical females. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's it's funny. It's funny how hormones was used like as a pejorative, like yeah. calling women hormonal as a way of being a pejorative. But it sort of underlies like hormones are amazing things and it makes us unique in a lot of ways, even though we're the same creatures. It's amazing how those chemical agents. So I find it like after reading this book, that's not a pejorative at all. Yeah, no, I mean, you just have to think about them as like large neurotransmitters that have widespread and long lasting effects. So in some ways, they're just like, you know, they're really powerful communicative tools that our body uses to change our behavior. Yeah. And it's funny because like I both have a much greater appreciation for how much impact hormones have on uh, our body system. And at the same time, I feel like slightly more resistant to just the junk on TV that's always peddling hormonal treatment for stuff like every night you can turn on uh, as randy mentioned like the tv and see an ad for like low testosterone therapy and this is going to make you you know sort of more vivacious and and uh all of that just seems like bunk to me uh yeah i mean it's much more complicated than that yeah right? exactly and at the same time we know that like there are 
tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people alive because of our understanding of how insulin works mm -hmm. now and our ability to sort of wrap our head around this. So this is both like at the edge of like really interesting science that has saved hundreds of thousands of lives and pseudoscience that is just filling your your body with who knows what. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it really is akin to this idea of, you know, like antidepressants being peddled out. Oh, just, you know, you just got you've got this chemical imbalance, you need to sort out just pop pop some serotonin pills, and you'll be fine. And of course, the, the, the reality is much more complicated than that. I mean, people who are depressed, they do not have low levels of serotonin, people who have normal levels of serotonin and are not depressed, you can't make them depressed by lowering their levels of serotonin. So, you know, it's a much more complicated scenario. And, and hormones have an even added level to that, because they, they don't limit their function to just the brain, right? They they influence lots of different parts of the body, lots of different brain regions in different ways. And so, you know, I think it is a really exciting area of, of science. And I think that it, it has traditionally been understudied because I think it's been difficult. And I think also there's probably uh, an influence of the fact that for a lot of medical science history, there has been an emphasis on looking at male animals because they don't have these hormonal fluctuations. Um, so they don't muddy the waters uh, and, and ignoring female animals. Although, you know, what we're learning, too, is that, you know, that that's just a mistake for both sides, right? Yeah, that's totally a mistake. I can tell you from personal experience, I have a lot of hormonal fluctuations. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do. I bet you do. I, I will say, um, after uh, everything we, we talked about, the one thing I walk away with is a greater appreciation for the minute differences that we all have. And that genetics... Uh, they they don't explain all those differences. Um, they might explain a certain part of them, but hormones are part of that picture too. And appreciating those differences and and celebrating those differences is more important than ever. Yeah, and it, it does also scare me a little bit when we think about like the way that we get a lot of these precursors for hormones can come from our diet. And so, you know, worrying about like, you know, how much soy you're consuming, because of course that's going to affect your hormones, how much plastic is in, you know, you're exposed to, you know, again, like a lot of this stuff gets hyped overhyped and, you know, there's just no data suggesting that some of these things are dangerous. On the other hand, you know, they could be because because there, there is a mechanism by which we can see them being harmful or at least change us. Yeah, we don't know. And we so that's know. why science has to step in. But now I'm hungry for a burger. Oh, Thanks. How about, how about an impossible burger? Yeah, a soy one. All right. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. So we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show where you can find links uh, from our various episodes. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chi. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. 
Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 